I, I, I pulled up some things. John, I didn't have John send me. Uh, his, he probably wouldn't have been extensive like this, but I wanted to read about, uh, just share with you uh, some of the things our guest speaker, um, his life and accomplishments. Um, when I looked at, when I read it for the first time, I thought, this is not one life, this is three lives. How do you get so much done, John? But um, so I decided I'll read it. But but after this, from now on, um, I won't introduce him any other way than just say, "Come on up, John." Okay? But here, here John, John Stewart is um, a, a Christian apologist. He's a lawyer. He's an author. He is a award-winning Bible teacher. He has earned degrees in Bible studies, theological studies, and law. Um, he, uh, he is currently uh, uh, the scholar of residence at Ratio Christi. John formerly co-hosted a national syndicated radio program. This is where I, um, I learned about John, was when he um, was uh, on the Bible Answer Man program and um, co-hosted uh, that with um, Dr. Walter Martin, and then also um, hosted himself, and he had a, a nationally syndicated radio show called John Stewart Live. Um, John served as the professor of law and apologetics at Simon Greeley School, uh, co-founding co it, actually, of law, and, which is now Trinity Law School. That's where two of my children have graduated from. Um, he later served as assistant director of Christian Research Institute. Um, he's the author of five books, and uh, I've read two of them. They're great, and uh, we'll get to the others, John. Um, John and his wife, Lori, are allied attorneys with Alliance Defending Freedom. And um, I said I would guarantee you um, when I sent out the the email, I guarantee you, you're going to have a treat, and uh, I heard the first service, you're going to like it. John, will you come and share with us? Would you welcome John Stewart? Thank you, Billy Brick. Well, good morning, Cornerstone Church. It's great to be here. I really appreciate Pastor Rick and Carol inviting me to come. And we've been attending here for a while. Got to meet a few folks. Hi, Chris. How are you, brother? And uh, meeting Dan in the back, who's always greeting me and very friendly. And this morning, he realized when I put the headset on, oh, you're speaking. Yeah. So I'll call him out for that. I have to introduce someone very special, and that is my wife, Lori. Please wave your hand. She won't stand up. There's Lori, <clears throat> my best friend and sweetheart, her sister, Wendy down from Northern California, from Reading, and uh, great having you also, Wendy. Uh, Lori is also an attorney. She has her master's degree in Christian apologetics from Talbot Seminary, the school where I graduated from. I did go to seminary, so I remember two things from seminary. Talk about God and talk about 30 minutes. It's always practical, you know what I mean? When I speak to an audience, I always try to make a good impression. Most of the sermons I do or in other countries, because I've been to Africa, I think I'm up to 22 times, Asia maybe 10 or 12 times. But the first time I went to Africa, I was in uh, Kenya, 
And I thought, well, they speak Swahili, so I'm going to greet them in Swahili, make them feel right at home. So I began to practice how to say good morning, ladies and gentlemen, in Swahili. So, habari yasubui, ladies and gentlemen, habari yasubui. So I was memorizing this. And finally, I think it gelled, so I was ready to go. Came the Sunday morning I'm supposed to speak, and I thought, I forgot how to say ladies and gentlemen. I had just enough time to run around to the back of the church and copy the names off the doors, men and women. So I got up, they introduced me, so I said, Habari Asabui, ladies and gentlemen. They stared at me like, what? So I thought, maybe it's my accent, my poor Swahili. So I tried one more time. There was chuckling and giggles. <laughs> so I thought one more time, Habari asubui, ladies and gentlemen. The pastor comes up and says, John, do you know what you're saying? I'm saying good morning, ladies and gentlemen. He says, no, you're saying good morning, toilet and broom closet. <laughs> so I've learned to perfect my Swahili along the ways. Sisemiki Swahili, sana. It is great to speak in other countries, except oftentimes there's a translator, so I only get half the time because you have to translate it. This morning, it's all in English. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Before I deal with a passage, I always like to take a trip down memory lane, or shall we say a look in the rearview mirror. What in the world is Matthew? What's chapter 9? Well, let's go back. First of all, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. As a result of creating humanity, which by the way, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, God made humanity in his own image and likeness. In Latin, that's called imago Dei, D-E-I being the Latin word for God. We are made in the image of God. And so in that image, God desires to have a relationship with us, to have fellowship with us. The problem, Adam and Eve blew it. They rebelled and they sinned against God. So what happened? Sin entered the world and death through sin, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans. So from that point forward, we're born with a problem. We're born separated from God. What's the solution? But the rest of the scripture has this scarlet thread of redemption to redeem the lost humanity that fell from grace. And so we find beginning in Genesis chapter 12, God is gonna bring his solution through someone called Abram. In Genesis 12, three, through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. So there's a preview that God is gonna do something special. He's gonna bring the solution, the remedy, through Abraham. And Abraham's sons, Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob's sons and grandchildren became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Bible says that through that lineage, all nations will be blessed. Genesis 49.10, I believe it is, said it'll be from the tribe of Judah within Israel that the Messiah will come, the scepter will not depart. We find out more specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would actually bring the Messiah through the lineage of Jesse, who was the father of David. So Bible prophecy keeps narrowing this down as to who this remedy will be. We find out it's gonna be a person. He's called the Messiah. The Hebrew word Mashiach, we get our word Messiah from that. The Greek equivalent is Christos or Christ. So Messiah or Christ means the anointed one. God is gonna raise up an anointed one and he will be the remedy for the sin problem that brings us back in a relationship with God. What is this Messiah going to do? What do we know about him? Bible prophecy tells us. First, to be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter five, verse two. 
Remember in the case where the Magi, the wise men, they approach Herod and they say, uh, we've come to worship him. And Herod turns to his scribes and asks, where should the Messiah be born? And they told him, Bethlehem. So they all knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We're told in Isaiah, the Messiah would suffer. He would die for the sins of the world. And indeed, that's what we find in the person of Jesus. We're told many things about the Messiah uh, in Old Testament scriptures. And so finally, the Jews taken into captivity, the temples destroyed in 586 BC with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then you see these successive powers during what we call the intertestament period. You ever wonder what happened from the close of the Old Testament to the beginning of the new? And I wish I had time to go into it in great detail. It's a great story. But after Babylon was conquered, remember Daniel chapter 5, uh, Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. I love King James. It says his knees smote against one another when he saw the handwriting. And the Medes and Persians took over. The Persians allowed the Jews to go back into the Holy Land and to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And then during that intertestament period, Alexander the Great rose up in the 4th century. When he died, the, uh, the, his general that reigned in the area of Syria, kind of took over. Finally, in about the year 63 BC, Rome came in. General Pompey subjugated Palestine. So what we find when Jesus is born is the Roman Empire has taken hold. And in the year 37 BC, the, uh, Rome actually appointed Herod as king of the Jews. The Roman Senate appointed him. And so at the time of Jesus, Herod has become the king by appointment from Rome. Now we come to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The Bible says, In the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At just that particular point in time, Jesus was to come to earth. So what we have in our own hands would be the, the Bible. 37 Old Testament books, I should say 39, 27 New Testament books, and the first four books are called the Gospels. The word gospel means good news. What are these? These are eyewitness accounts. These are primary source documents telling us what Jesus said and what he did. Matthew's a tax collector. We're going to be looking at what his account of the healing of the paralyzed man. Mark actually, some people don't know this, but according to the early church father Papias, Mark actually wrote the recollections of Peter. Mark was not an eyewitness, but Peter certainly was. So Peter gave the specific details to Mark. He recorded those, and we call that the Gospel of Mark. Luke is an investigative journalist. Read the prologue to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where he talks about having investigated everything thoroughly and putting them down in consecutive order. Then John writes last, and he is the one who... Uh, of course, is the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had an intimate relationship. So we've got these four gospel accounts that tell us about the life of Jesus, and we have these reliable documents so that we can know what Jesus said and what he did. Unfortunately, today we have a lot of skepticism. And with the internet and people taught in the universities, well, we don't really know much about Jesus. It all come down way after the time of his life. That's just not true. My last book is called In Defense of the Gospels, and I deal with the main questions people have about the Gospels. Who wrote them? When did they write them? Wish I had time to talk about that this morning, but I don't. But anyway, the book's called In Defense of the Gospels. But I detail and document in that book what we have today 
are the accurate, precise words of Jesus and his actions. We can trust that he actually did say and do the things written there. I don't say that based on faith. I say that based on the evidence. And as a lawyer, what I do in a courtroom is present evidence. So the evidence is on our side. So here's Matthew, a tax collector. And he wrote his gospel, his eyewitness account regarding Jesus. And we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And by way of background, Mark actually deals with the same event of the paralyzed man being healed. It's in Mark chapter 2. It's also in Luke chapter 5. This morning I'm going to use Matthew's account. It's a little more condensed, a bare-bones account. Now, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you realize Mark is usually the most direct, succinct gospel. It doesn't have a lot of detail compared to Matthew. In this case, Matthew has the bare-bones account. I'll throw out the question, why in this case would Mark have more detail and Luke have more detail than Matthew? And the answer can be found beginning with Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew hadn't yet been called by Jesus. He's called right after this takes place, so he wasn't an eyewitness. So he's actually getting the recollections of Peter uh, through Mark. Verse 1, so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Now, the word about Jesus was spreading. People were finding out about him healing people, casting out demons, uh, exorcisms taking place. In fact, if you look at the chapter right before this in Matthew chapter 8, you've got Jesus uh, healing the centurion's servant. You have him healing Peter's mother-in-law. You have him casting demons out of uh, the man and put him into swine which I know it's corny, but that is the first case of double to ham on record. Um, I know that's a bad one. But we have all these accounts of Jesus doing miracles. So by the time we arrive at Matthew chapter 9, the crowd is following him. The word is out that Jesus can heal and he can, uh, he can uh, cast out demons. It says in verse 1, he, he came to his own city. A lot of people think that Jesus' own city was Nazareth. Well, it used to be. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but he moved his ministry headquarters to the north, kind of the northwest tip of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Capernaum. And so that's where his headquarters is. In fact, if you read Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when he had come back to Capernaum, it was heard that he was home. So that's Jesus' new home. What was Capernaum? Well, it's a little fishing village right there, as I said, on the kind of the northwest uh, tip of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had previously taught in the synagogue there. He healed people. They were amazed at his teaching. And also, it's the home of some people you've heard of before. It was a home of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as well as a tax collector by the name of Matthew. So Capernaum was quite the gospel central at this particular period of time as Jesus begins uh, his ministry. Uh, in Matthew 9, then, we see Jesus in his ministry headquarters. He's in a house. Verse 2, now the action begins. They, then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. This is a paralyzed man brought to Jesus. Now, it's never easy to be disabled. Some of you have disabilities, some more severe than others. Now, can you imagine someone being paralyzed in the first century? You're going to have to depend on other people for everything, just about everything in life. And that's what we find here. 
Uh, Matthew, Mark chapter 2, verse 2 says there were so many people in that house that there was no more room even near the door. And Luke tells us that there were people, including scribes and Pharisees, who had come as far as Jerusalem to hear Jesus. Now, were they there to be blessed by his teachings, or were they there to investigate and find out a way to condemn him? I think it's more the latter, as you see, and Jesus heals someone. Rather than being blessed, they all of a sudden want to figure out, how did he do this? It must be by the spirit of, of Beelzebub. So anyway, the scribes and Pharisees were there. Mark tells us there were actually four men. Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does tell us that. Uh, four men, and Luke tells us that they wanted to put this paralyzed man in front of Jesus. Well, there's a problem. Can't get in. Place is packed. So what do they do? They go up on the roof and begin to pull apart some of the roofing material. Uh, Mark says they dug an opening. Uh, Luke actually says that it was dug through the tiles. The word, Greek word there is keramos. Our word ceramic comes from that. They're pulling apart the ceramic tiles. These people were determined. Talk about determined. They're interceding on behalf of their friend who's paralyzed, and they believe that Jesus can heal. So there they are, standing on the roof, pulling the tiles apart, and they drop these people at Jesus, this guy at Jesus' feet, the paralyzed man. Now, two things that I want to mention regarding this. First of all, these men, these four men, were exercising intelligent faith. That's the theme of my message this morning, intelligent faith. What do I mean by that? They had a reason to believe that Jesus could heal. The word was out. There were other people giving testimonies. I was lame, or I was blind, or I could not hear, and Jesus healed me. So there was a factual basis. It wasn't wish projection, but it was a factual basis for them to accept the possibility that Jesus could heal their paralyzed friend if they could get this man in front of Jesus. So that's why we call it intelligent faith, not, uh, not blind faith. Luke chapter 10, verse 27 tells us that we're to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our spirit, and our mind. Love God with your mind. My former colleague, the late Walter Martin, used to say that one of the problems on Sunday mornings is Christians are afraid of being struck with a thought. You want to sort of sit there mesmerized instead of thinking about the goodness of God and the facts and the evidence that shows how great he really is. So this was intelligent faith, intelligent faith. So that's first. Secondly, it's an example of intercession, intercession, where we are reaching out to God on behalf of someone else. Realize it was not the faith of the paralyzed man, but of the friends of this man, those four guys, who brought him in front of Jesus that inspired Jesus. That's intercession. That's when God responds to our prayers on behalf of somebody else. I know Scott spoke about intercession a few weeks ago, and he did a really good job illustrating it. This was intercession. I want to talk about intercession for a moment before we go on in the story. First of all, Jesus intercedes for us. When we talk about going to God on behalf of others, this is what Jesus does for you and for me. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Some of you know this verse where it talks about that Jesus, uh, he is also able to save us to the uttermost and those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
want to comment on this briefly. Or it says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. What does that mean? Well, I'm not a very good swimmer. If I go out to Newport Beach on a nice warm day and the water gets above like 64 degrees, I might venture out into the water. Well, if a riptide comes along, pulls me out to sea, then someone called a lifeguard is going to come out and rescue me and take me to shore. Well, that's great. But what's to keep me from when I finally catch my breath to go right back out and needing to be saved again? When it comes to Jesus, you're saved once for all. You're saved to the uttermost is what the writer of the Hebrews tells us. But secondly, it says Jesus makes intercession for us, intercession for us. As a result of Jesus interceding on our behalf, what kind of acceptance do we have with God the Father? We have perfect acceptance. I want to illustrate this. I was at a football game, high school game, Walnut High School. A fellow I knew who was a medical doctor invited me to come to the game. He said, I'm going to be the team physician for the game. I'll be standing on the sidelines. Do you want to come and join me? I said, yeah, it'd be great. So we met in the parking lot. We're walking up to the ticket taker, and he turns to the ticket taker and says, uh, I'm the team physician, and he walks on through as they open up the turnstile for him. There I am standing there thinking, what do I say? So I could be using the old line about, well, the guy behind me has a ticket, and then you keep doing that till the last guy says, I don't have their tickets. By that time, you're already in. I didn't know what to say to the lady, so I was just about to say, I'm with him, but then the doctor turns around and points to me and says, he's with me. And they open up the gate and let me in. When we stand before God, we don't stand there and say to the Father, I'm with Jesus. Jesus looks to the Father and says, he's with me. She's with me. Because Jesus is the one who intercedes. And now we have perfect acceptance. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Intercession. Now, it's not only Jesus interceding. The Bible says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. You probably heard this verse. Romans 8, 26. Have you ever had needs in your life, but you couldn't quite put it into words? You just know there's something going on. Lord, Romans tells us something about that. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit also helps, us, helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So indeed, Jesus intercedes, the Spirit intercedes. As a result of that, what do we think? Well, the Bible says we are to intercede on behalf of others. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 says, First of all, then, I urge then, Requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people. We are to intercede for others. That's part of our calling as Christians, to think of who do we know who has needs. They need forgiveness. They need healing. They need faith. They need encouragement. We are the ones to intercede. We go before the Lord, and we ask God to do a work in their life. I have lots of people I pray for. I told a story uh, in the last service where uh, we were on our way back from Tennessee on Friday and just got back late Friday night, so if we looked a little bit jet-lagged just because of that. And on the way to the airport, a friend of mine who I play softball with and we're supposed to have a tournament this week, he calls and says, oh, I got injured, so I'm not going to be able to play. 
And I said, wow, maybe we should have a healing service. And I was half kidding. He says, well, funny you should mention that. But one of the fellows there uh, playing with me said, can I pray for you? And he said, sure. And he prayed for me. Well, I had an idea who it was because that same person was the one who told me that he came to this church. His name's Tim Murphy. And Tim Murphy prayed for my friend Gary, who's actually a Jewish believer and uh, yet to hear the result, but interceded for him. And it's exciting to see that we have people who are boldly interceding on behalf of others. That's what we're called to do, to intercede on behalf of others. And back during the, uh, when the pandemic had shut everything down, we used to play our softball games in the city of Anaheim, one of the parks there. They closed it all down. Well, we being the uh, rebellious type decided we're going to play anyway without the sanction of the city. So we played over the line, about 20 of us, uh, every, t- two times a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's when I ran into Tim Murphy. And he was passing out tracts and, and sharing the gospel with some of the other players. And I thought, whatever church this guy goes to, I'm going to visit there. And so when I had an opportunity just a couple of few months ago, I came here and I saw this is a family a family of believers that believes being spirit-filled and in studying the scripture. I said, that's a place I'm going to go back. So here we are, and thank God for the opportunity to come and share with you and tell you that, how the Lord is working in this church. But we are to intercede on behalf of others. Amen. So it says, when Jesus saw their faith, that's the four men, not the paralytic, He said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. So it was the faith of the four men that prompted Jesus to forgive that paralytic. And so I have to ask the question of us, who in your life, as we sit here this morning, who needs forgiveness? Does anybody come to mind? And we should intercede for that person. Are you praying for him? Are you praying for forgiveness? Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, forgiveness is why Jesus came to earth. It says that in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. That's why Jesus came, that he might set us free from sin. So indeed, uh, redemption is what Jesus makes available. Who needs forgiveness that we know? Intercede for him. Verse 3, and At once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now, why would some of these scribes or Pharisees consider it blasphemy to say to the man, your sins are forgiven? It's because forgiving sin is something that only God can do. It's a unique attribute or characteristic or facet. It belongs exclusively to God. We call it a divine prerogative. So here's Jesus saying your sins are forgiven. Mark and Luke both tell us the scribes were thinking that Jesus had blasphemed because they were asking, who can forgive sin but God? Now, using that same reasoning, if Jesus can forgive sin, he must be God. We'll get to that in a moment. But today, there's a lot of confusion about who is Jesus. Was he just a good man? Back in the 1970s, remember the rock opera, if you're old enough to remember Jesus Christ Superstar? Jesus Christ, what have you sacrificed? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think you are who they say you are? There's a question about who is Jesus. Well, there's still that question today. Indeed, who is Jesus? And Jesus himself asked the question in Matthew 22, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? 
The answer we give to that question, I think, determines where we spend eternity. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul was concerned because there was some false teaching going around that day, some false teaching and false preaching. It says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, this you tolerate very well. Who is this other Jesus? Well, could be the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, who is Michael the Archangel. Could be the Jesus of Islam, who is not God, not the Son of God, didn't die on a cross, didn't rise from the dead, but is a mere prophet. Could be the Jesus of Mormonism, who is the spirit brother of Lucifer, one God amongst the pantheon of gods. Could be the Jesus of Christian science, who's a divine idea, not the crucified, resurrected Son of God and God the Son. So how do we talk to these people like Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses about the identity of Jesus? Well, let me give you a couple of examples here. I deal with this in some detail, and not in my last book, but one before that, and it's called More Than a Prophet, The Identity of Jesus from the Bible, the Quran, and Early Sources. You can get it on Amazon. And in this book, it basically is things I learned from having a debate with a Muslim sheikh. And a sheikh is one of these, like an imam who is like the head of the, the whole family line. He's a big shot in Islam. And so I had a friend who set up this debate with Sheikh Husseini Mabara. And the topic, is Jesus God? Now, I have to tell you about the setting here. Now, I love these friendly environments where we come to church and here we are, we're all on the same team. This did not happen in my backyard. We, the debate took place in Lagos, Nigeria. There was about 1,000 people that were attending and about 600 or so were Muslims. Security was eight or 10 federal police officers carrying rifles, some standing by the stage and some standing by the only way out. I had to be prayed up to do that one. So as we discussed this issue, and there's lots of stories I could tell about that, it was actually fun, but I believe that was probably the first time that these Muslims ever heard the gospel presented by a Christian. Because they're never told what we truly believe. They're told we believe in three gods and all these other things. So here's what I did. Islam says that God, Allah, has 99 titles that are exclusive to him. No one else can claim these titles. Well, what are these titles? He's the creator. He's the first and the last. He is worshipped. And he forgives sin. Now, there's a bunch more, but we'll leave it at those. He's the creator. Allah's the creator. Okay, great. He's the first and last. Okay. He's worshipped. Only Allah is worshipped. And only Allah can forgive sin. Okay. Now, I pointed out that all those things are also true of the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. But here's your problem, Mr. Muslim. If Jesus is merely a prophet, John chapter 1, verse 3 says, he's the creator. Hmm, how can a mere prophet be the creator and have a title that only uh, belongs to God? How about first and the last? Revelation chapter 22, verses 13 and 14 tells us, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is Jesus talking. Hmm. If Jesus is merely a prophet, how can he be the creator? And why is he called the first and the last? If only Allah, God's the first and the last. Hmm. How about worship? 
If only God is worshipped, why is Jesus worshipped? Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's not the only time Jesus is worshipped. John chapter 9, the man born blind worshipped him. The Magi, when they came, they saw his star in the east. They said, we've come to worship him. If Jesus is merely a prophet, why is he worshipped if only God is to be worshipped? Get him thinking. And lastly, there's forgiveness. Only God can forgive, but yet here we are in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Let me throw out one other way. Since Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses similarly reject the deity of Jesus, how would you talk to a Jehovah's Witness about this? Well, here's what I did. And I will show you how within one minute, within 60 seconds, the entire worldview of this nice young man changed when I pointed something out to him. At the time, Lori and I lived out in Villa Park, and we had a problem with our television, so we called for the, I don't know who it was, the AT&T to come out and send a television repairman. So this fellow comes out, and uh, my cable was down in my little tiny office, and I had a few of my books there. I have a whole bunch of books, but there's just a few of them. So he comes walking in, he sees my books and sees all these books about the Bible. He goes, oh, are you a student of scripture? I said, yeah, I try to be. And he says, oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Now, if you know my background, for me, that's like ringing the dinner bell. Like I start salivating. <laughs> I said, oh, you're a Jehovah's Witness. So I reached on my shelf and pulled out the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which I keep copies of. I said, do you agree that only God should be worshiped? Oh, yeah, only, only uh, Jehovah should be worshipped. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 2, or chapter 6. I said, didn't Jesus even repeat that in Luke chapter 4, verse 8? Only God should be worshipped. He goes, yeah, totally agree. Only Jehovah should be worshipped. Great, we've established that. Now, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And open up his own Bible, and I said... And the Father says to the angels, let all the angels of God worship him, referring to Jesus. Let all the angels of God, it's the Father telling the angels, worship Jesus. I show him that, and he's like, he didn't know what to do. If he could have found a place to hide, he would have. I said, sir, this is evidence that you've been lied to about who Jesus is. You've been misrepresented. I said, you need to look into the scriptures and get rid of that translation that you're using. Go to the scriptures and see that Jesus is God. He told me he would come back and later have a conversation with me because he was just so frazzled. Within a minute, I totally changed his whole worldview. He didn't come back. I hadn't seen him after that. But nonetheless, it helps to illustrate how if you just have some tools available to show them they're in error, you can demonstrate Indeed, that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's not Michael the archangel. He is God in the flesh. But you ask the Muslim, so if Jesus is merely a prophet, why is he given these titles that are exclusive to God, to Allah? If Jesus is not God, why did his followers, even his enemies, he himself in the early church called him God? Why? And if he's not God, why did the Father tell the angels to worship him in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6? I want to talk about knowing by the Spirit. Go to verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knows that they're thinking it's blasphemy. Knowing their thoughts, he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
Jesus is perceiving. He's getting a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom from the Spirit. It's not something you can put into objective terms because I think this happens in the supernatural realm where Jesus is getting this word. Perceiving in his spirit, and this literally means, the word means to see with your mind, to perceive. J.P. Moreland, who's a professor at Talbot, one of my wife's former professors, who actually worships down the street, I think at the vineyard, uh, he wrote a book last year called A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles. Interesting book. And in that he says, quote, one can know something without knowing how they know. One can know something without knowing how they know. Have you ever known something in your spirit? You couldn't actually point to a time that that's how you knew that? God somehow quickened that to you. He revealed that to you. Now, I'm the type where, as a lawyer, I deal with facts and evidence, so I try to make sure that if something is happening in the spiritual realm, that it, God really sends a message loud and clear. So here's what happened to me. Lori and I were on our way to Indonesia to, uh, to teach and train Christians there. Before we went, I had this strong, strong impression, call it a word from the Lord if you want, the Spirit revealing to me that something bad was going to happen. It was going to have to do with somebody's heart, and the person's name started with J. It was so profound, and this is not normal for me, so profound that I told Lori before we left, I said, something's going on. I have this, this word from the Lord, call it that, that something's going to happen. I didn't know who, didn't know when, but I had to tell her, and I'm glad I did, because if you do it after the fact, it kind of loses some of the same steam. But it was that profound. God was telling me something, and I'd never done anything like that before that I can remember. We get to Indonesia. I get a text from one of the lawyers who works for me, Brooke Miller, a Trinity graduate, by the way. She, her text says, John, Lori, storm the gates of heaven. Jason, her husband, had a heart attack. I thought, oh, Jay, heart, wow. So we prayed, and as we prayed, I told Lori, he's not going to die. He's going to be okay. A few hours later, we got a text from Brooke that said, the doctors just came in and told us, told me, it's time to say our goodbyes. What we didn't know was he had coded 12 times. If you code once, you have a 30% chance, or actually a 15% chance of survival. He coded 12 times where his heart stopped. The doctors came to Brooke and said, it's time to let him go. We're just torturing him by trying to shock him back because he's gone. They didn't give him a 1% chance. They gave him a 0% chance, no chance at all. And when we got that text, I looked at Lori and I said, he's not going to die. Now, how did I know that? The Lord revealed that to me. That's all I can say. I can't tell you how. I knew that as well as I know my own name. I knew God was doing something. Brooke told the doctors, don't pull the plug yet. I don't want to leave a widow yet. I got to be prepared for that. About 20 minutes later, they come shuffling toward her and said, we don't know how to explain this to you, but your husband just woke up. Go see him. And she said, I felt like Peter and John running to the empty tomb, trying to get there as fast as possible because her husband had gone from death to life. 
I already knew he wasn't going to die. I'm in Indonesia. How did that happen? How do you explain that? The only way you can explain that is by knowing in the spirit. And for me, it's not that common, but maybe it should be. Maybe I'm not open to that. Be open to the moving of the spirit. Jesus asked the question then, verse 5, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't see or verify or confirm whether anything happens. If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, well, how do you know? Anybody can make the claim. So Jesus asked, which is easier? If you say your sins are forgiven, you can't test that. There's no way to verify whether anything happens or not. It would be like if I told you, I have an elephant in my garage where we live, but you can't see it, only I can see it. Well, that didn't make any sense because how do you verify it? So it's kind of a nonsensical statement. And I'm a lawyer, so I deal with evidence, not I feel. No jury's going to buy it if I say, well, I feel my client's in the right. No, they want to know what the facts are. What's the evidence? So Jesus asked the question, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? So if Jesus says, get up and walk, now we've got something that can be observed. Either he gets up or he doesn't. Now it's something that can be verified empirically with the senses. Everybody standing by can look and see what what takes place. So Jesus says, verse 6, so that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, I don't know a lot about poker, but I've watched it on TV a couple times. This is called going all in. All the chips are on the table because if this man does not rise, Jesus' messiahship is blown. He's a phony. He's a fraud. But if he does stand up and rises up, Jesus can forgive sins because he's God who does miracles. Now, it was common for people to question Jesus' teachings, but they couldn't question his works. That's why he says in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe the Father is in me. For example, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus does a healing. They never in the Bible ask, did you heal? They always ask, how did you heal? By what authority did you heal? Because they couldn't deny that the healing took place. So in this case, Jesus tells the man, rise up, take your bed, and go to your house. It's all in. Verse 7, and he arose and departed to his house. We can know by the Spirit, but we can also know by the evidence. Jesus confirms his Messiahship, and his healing was evidence he had supernatural power, evidence that if he could heal a paralyzed man, it was reasonable to believe that he could forgive sins. It's the same thing with Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus said, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. He said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of sins. Well, how do we know that our sins were placed on Jesus at the cross? Sure, he said so. Is there any evidence that that happened? Well, again, it's in the spiritual realm. So is there some way to verify that Jesus really died for your sins and my sins? Yeah, it's called the resurrection. And Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead. 
as the evidence, as the proof that what I'm promising you is true. So as a lawyer, I investigate the evidence and I look at the reliability of the documents to say, he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence that when he died on a cross, he died for my sins. Indeed. It says, verse 8, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. God is glorified when his works are made known and Jesus made known the works of God. And this reminds me of probably the overarching verse of scripture that reminds us, what are we supposed to do in this life? And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Paul says, whatever you do, eat or sleep, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And indeed, God is glorified. Jesus performs a miracle as evidence he can forgive sin, and he's therefore the Messiah. And Jesus constantly used evidence to demonstrate who he was. And the result of the healing miracle, in fact, Luke says, used the word that means they were ecstatic. So just like Jesus used evidence to demonstrate he was the Messiah, we are called to give people reasons and evidence why we are Christians. It's not just for the evangelists and the pastors, it's for all believers to know what we believe and why we believe it. The seminal verse is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter writes, he says, sanctify Jesus as Lord and be ready at any time to make a defense or give a defense to everyone who asks you of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And the words there translated give a defense is actually one word in Greek. Peter's writing in Greek. It's the Greek word apologia, apologia. From that Greek word, we get our word apologetics. It means to make a defense, to give evidence and reason why our position is true. Apologetics, the use of evidence. Apologetics can be used both with unbelievers and with believers. Let's talk about non-Christians. A lot of skepticism out there. A lot of things on the internet that are just not true. And if you go to a university today, most of those professors are so anti-Christian, they're going to try to rip you apart and destroy your faith. We have so much evidence to respond and refute them. But unfortunately, not enough churches are teaching and training our young people on how to defend the faith. With respect to unbelievers, in the same way Jesus used evidence to show he could forgive sin, uh, in the same way we can use evidence and reasoning and persuasion to tell people they need Jesus in their lives. And most people aren't going to deny that they need help, that they're sinners, but we need to bring Jesus as the solution. If you want to know how the Apostle Paul handled this, you go to Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. In Acts 17, 2 and 3, Paul, as is his custom, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer. He's using evidence, reason, persuasion. That's what we're supposed to do. And I believe we need to present this with conviction, Someone once said the least convincing thing is the truth told unconvincingly. Have a passion. Have a passion as we proclaim Jesus is Lord. So apologetics is for non-Christians, but it can also be used for believers. How so? Well, we're already saved. Ah, because it can help give us that assurance, the blessed assurance, indeed, to remind us that God is still on the throne, even when trials come our way, 
we may wonder, where is God in all this? And we look to scripture and there's the evidence. Jesus did die for us. He did rise from the dead and it's true. In Matthew chapter 11, verses two through five, here's the man, John the Baptist. Now remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the one in John 1, who says to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. He said, I'm not worthy to loosen his sandals. So here's the same John. He's about to be executed by Herod Antipas. And so John sends word. He'd heard the words of Christ or works of Christ. And he sent word, are you the coming one or do we look for someone else? What? Is John the Baptist having a crisis of faith? I don't think so. I think John just wanted to be reminded or to have a little word of comfort that as he's about to go into eternity, that indeed Jesus is waiting for him. I don't think John was in doubting. I think he just wanted to hear it again, that blessed assurance. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 35, go tell John the lame walk, the deaf can hear, the blind can see. Yep, I'm the guy, John. So John has that assurance. How many Christians, all of us, from time to time, go through some deep water? Things pop into our lives we don't expect and like catches us off guard. So what do we need? We need some assurance. We need the Lord to give us some comfort and some peace. And for me, knowing the facts, knowing that the evidence supports what we've believed is true, oh, even though everything else is falling apart, I can still say those promises of God will come true because the evidence is on our side. So when those crises arrive, if you want to know if God is listening, yes, he is. Look to scripture. The evidence is on our side. I want to close by just summarizing this and giving you a perspective, something to take home with you. And first of all, we're told to love God with our minds. Remember, it's intelligent faith. It's not blind faith. It's not ignorant faith. It's intelligent faith. Christianity is faith founded on fact. Also, we can know by the Spirit as well as we can know in human terms. So don't discount the Spirit teaching you and revealing things to you and giving you a word like he did with me regarding Jason and the heart issue and the fact that he's not going to die. Also, know by the evidence. Let the evidence confirm God's truth and be ready to share that with other people. Paul says, to, or Peter says, to be ready to give an answer, apologia. And then also remember that Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Isaiah 61, Jesus quotes that in Luke chapter 4 and says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. We all know someone who's brokenhearted. We're in a position to intercede for them. Let's all stand. As we think about intercession, reaching out on behalf of someone else, how many in here know someone, someone close to you, that right now, as we stand, could use prayer for healing, for forgiveness, for salvation, for a situation, a crisis in their life. Raise your hand if you know someone right now that you know you could intercede for them. Great. Gives us an idea. Now, how many in here this morning, you don't need to say what it is, but how many could use intercessory prayer? How many could use someone saying, pray for me? and asking God to do something special. Raise your hand if you could use intercessory prayer. 
Now hold those hands up, and I would like to have, look and see where the hands are, and those close by, why don't you walk over toward them, put your hands on them, let's pray for them. Whatever their need is, you don't have to disclose that. Put hands on them, pray for them. Let's just take a minute and pray an intercessory prayer, whatever that need, to believe in the God who's greater than our circumstances will meet that need. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name that you're already aware of the needs for the individuals here who want intercessory prayer. Lord, regardless of what it is, you are the one with the cattle on a thousand hills. You are the great physician. You are the healer of hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, that whatever the situation, it would be a very real presence in the life of the one who needs your presence. Indeed, Lord, that we can trust you and believe in you. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to the throne of grace asking to do miracles, to reveal things by your spirit, and to bless not only us, but those around us. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons we can learn that indeed you are forgiving, healing God. We give you thanks. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I've done.
You free.